0: Good morning. Hey, if you have uh, a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to continue in that uh, year-long series that we've been in in Ephesians chapter 6. If we have not met, uh, my name is Rob, and I get the privilege of serving as a preacher here at New Hope. And um, the way we like to do things here at the church is we like to make sure that we're available. And so would love to meet you and your family if we've not been able to do that yet. So Ephesians chapter 6. While you're turning there, let me celebrate something with you. Um, Chris and Angela Jones have been attending New Hope for a a while now, since moving back to the area. And uh, we got to strike up a friendship and spend quite a bit of time together. And through multiple conversations and uh, just looking at Bible study and hanging out together. Um, Chris, on Thursday of this past week, made a decision uh, to be baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. I got the honor and privilege of baptizing him. Here he is. You can see Chris has, yeah, celebrate that. Chris has a lot more muscle on him than me. I told him you better squat uh, going down because, brother, I don't know if I can get you back up, okay? <laughs> so it was really an awesome thing to celebrate uh, together as a church family. want to make sure you're able to do that with us. So uh, let's transition this way. I don't know if you are aware of this, but... In the ancient world, when you study history, you come to learn that many people were very superstitious. As a matter of fact, many of the things that we're superstitious about now can be traced back to the ancient world. Things like knocking on wood, throwing salt over your shoulder, a black cat crossing your path and thinking, oh no. And it was everything you understood about what happened to you and everything you understood about what you wanted to happen to you. And could you influence it in some way? And so you do these superstitious things. Most of these ideas and practices came right out of the daily life of the Roman Empire. People in those days believed in many different gods. And these gods would rule over different facets and areas of life. And so you had to appease these gods because some of them were grumpy. Some of them had quirks. And if you wanted things to go well in that particular part of life, you needed to do certain things to make them happy enough with you for that particular area to work out in your life. And so you approach them with caution, like, is this a good day? Are they in a good mood? What do I have to do? I, would, I need this to go well in my life. And so picture it this way. Let's just say uh, that you're getting ready to take a long trip across the Mediterranean Sea, and you own a family business. It's been passed down to you from generation to generation, and now it's in your hands. And so a lot is riding on your shoulders And you know that if you can get across in this ancient world, this Mediterranean Sea, you can begin to do a little bit of business. And so you load up your boat and you're getting ready to go. But before you would ever take that trip across that body of water, you would have gone into a certain temple and paid homage to the God known as Neptune because the seas are what he ruled over. And so you would get a goat and you would slaughter the goat and you would put the blood at the base of the statue of Neptune and you would begin to barter with him. I've done something for you. So now will you keep the seas calm for me? I've done my part. It's time for you to do your part. And you would walk out of that temple and you would feel nowhere near the confidence level needed to take this trip, right? (laughs) Because as you can imagine, you wouldn't come out of a situation like that feeling, oh, I did it. Everything's going to be good. And so oftentimes people would take with them a pagan priest so that if you didn't pay enough, if you didn't do enough to one of these gods, you could have that pagan priest on your journey with you to help you make additional decisions necessary to keep the seas calm and get through your journey. Okay, We see examples of this type of behavior in the Bible even. Ezekiel chapter 21 tells us about a trip that the king of Babylon was headed out on another campaign. And so with him, he wanted to make sure that he did the right thing. And so you can be assured that he would have gone into these different temples and paid homage to these different gods and just made sure things were aligned for this journey that he was going on. And Ezekiel 21 tells us that while the king's on his journey, he comes to this fork in the road, and he's not quite sure what decision to make. And Ezekiel tells us that there's three different ways that the king would seek to understand what to do next. The first is to cast lots, which one of the gods deserves him to appease him more than the rest. And so you'd cast lots, and whichever god, one, that's the god you paid attention to to hopefully get direction for what decision to make next in your life. The second thing that you could do is you could begin to read the minds of the gods, seek, seek to read the minds of these different gods and try to understand what they're doing, so you would consult with these different idols, and you would try to just determine, okay, which one really is in the grumpiest mood that might come back on me. I need to make sure I do the right thing. And the third thing is that you could examine a liver, I want that to settle in just for a second. That's what it says. Because in those days, they believed that your decision-making, your intuition, your thinking came from your uh, gut and not your mind. That's what they believed. And so you've heard the phrase, trust your gut, right? And that's exactly what they believed. They believed that because the liver was the biggest organ in the body, that it was the source of your intelligence, your ability to make certain decisions in life. And so you'd be on a trip like this and uh, a pagan priest would take a goat, slaughter the goat, take the liver out, examine the liver and be able to tell you what your next decision should be. And that's crazy, right? They would pull out the liver and say, you see the way the liver's sitting in my hands, the way it's moving, the way it jiggles around like that. Like that means that your next best decision for your life so that it doesn't tank is to go this direction. And we hear that, and we think to ourselves, that's the weirdest, dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, how, why in the world would they do that? And yet, we do some of the silliest things to make decisions, to feel good about our decisions in today's world, just like they did back then. Anyone ever knock on wood? Why do we do that? Knock on wood because somehow that means things will stay good and it's going to go okay, right? Wishing someone luck? Good luck. What does that do? It doesn't change anything. Like somehow, if I wish you luck, that the God of luck will bestow his blessings on this decision. Or how many of you fall prey to the lie of bad news comes in threes? So all of a sudden, something bad happens to you. We got two more things, guys, right? Let's get through these next two things, and then we're good for at least a little while until something else happens, and then we have to wait two more times, right? Or sports. Man, if I wear these boxers, in every game, I'm going to play as good as I did in that first game that I wore them, right? And why would I wash the luck off the boxers, right? Why would I ever do that? Like the World Series is going on right now. One of the things I find most fascinating is to watch the most superstitious athletes in the history of the world. Every movement, every movement of the glove, every, the way you hold the bat, what you do, where you stand. Like somehow, if you'll do it right, the baseball gods will bless you because of your superstitious behavior. And you'll all of a sudden play really good. And I'm not just pointing fingers, I've fallen prey to this. When I got an injury playing basketball, uh, I remember vividly thinking I have to wear two pairs of socks from now on. If I don't wear two socks somehow, as if that extra thin layer of cotton was going to protect my ankle from twisting when I came down wrong. We do some silly things, thinking that somehow if I'll just do it this way, behave this way, right, throw the salt over my shoulder, whatever it is I'm doing, then all of a sudden things will get better and it'll work out. On a more serious note, rather than just being superstitious, many of us fall prey to some other deceit, some other lies. We think, man, if I can work hard enough, earn enough money, and live that kind of life, bad things don't happen to those kind of people. And so I'm going to set out to make a ton of money to create a comfortable life, because if I can create a comfortable life for me and my family, well, tragedy doesn't strike that. Or if I can just work hard enough to get this position at work or this position in the community that somehow I'll have the clout, the authority, the influence that bad things won't be able to happen. And if they do, I'll have the ability to get out of it really, really quick. And we begin to think that direction. And the reason... Because every one of us, regardless of where you land on the spectrum of Christianity, if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're somewhat new to understanding Jesus, wherever you find yourself, everybody in the room would agree the world feels pretty broken. And we have that feeling inside of us that something bad could happen to us too. And I want to do whatever it takes to make sure that that bad thing doesn't happen. That I prevent that storm from hitting my home that I prevent that tragedy from affecting my family. And so we've been deceived into creating enemies out of these things or out of the people that get in the way from us getting that money, that power, or fulfilling that superstition to prevent that bad thing from happening to me. And so we begin to live that kind of a life with that kind of thing. And if you remember what we talked about last week, we've been tricked into making an enemy out of something that's not our real enemy so that we take our eyes off of our real enemy who wants nothing more than for you to not pay attention to him. He wants nothing more. And we kind of concluded this. You have an enemy who hates you. Right? Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 12 tell us that Satan hates you. He hates everything about you. He wants your life to be in ruin. And one of the ways that he does that is he deceives you into making an enemy out of something that's really not your enemy. And the entire narrative of the Bible screams this off of its pages, warning us that, hey, one of Satan, one of your enemy's greatest tactics is to get you to turn something else into an enemy and therefore resort back to your old way of living, your old way of fighting that enemy, engaging in that battle, putting on the wrong armor to begin our analogy for today. You see this all throughout the Bible. It's so much easier to live in the captivity to sin and fighting the battles of life in that captivity than it is to truly live in the freedom of Christ. And you see this. One of the examples that comes to my mind is one of the most important stories in your entire Bible, Uh, one of the most important events in the entire human history is the Exodus. This time in history where God's people were held captive for over 400 years to Egypt, held enslaved, no freedom, Watching family tree after family tree be destroyed as everybody, generation after generation, was just held captive. And you begin to see this story really points to the future story of Jesus who would come and free us from our captivity. But it actually happened in history. And the Israelite people held captive are finally freed by Moses who comes and God uses Moses to free his people from captivity. And as a result, they are leaving Egypt and they're out in the wilderness and the first sign of difficulty comes their way. And they begin to wonder about engaging in this battle against this difficulty in the freedom that they have from the God who just delivered them or to resort back to the way that they used to have to do things. And in Numbers chapter 14, you get a glimpse into this. They begin to grumble and complain to Moses. And then it culminates in verse 4 where it says, we should just get a new leader and go back to Egypt. And I think, what? You've watched generation after generation of your people be enslaved. Walk through the pain and heartache of what that enslavement meant. You've been freed from that enslavement to walk in a new freedom, to experience everything new from the God who just delivered you, who's providing for you, who's told you how to weather the storm of the wilderness to get to the promised land, who's given you a clear vision of your future. And at the first sign of difficulty, you want to go back to doing it the way you used to do it. I heard one author say it this way. One of the hardest things to do is to convince a free person to truly live free. Because it is so easy for us to resort back to engaging in life's difficulties the way that we used to before we knew Jesus. And Jesus kind of calls this out. If you remember in Luke chapter 8, he's on a boat with his disciples. And he is in a place of deep sleep. So much so that a storm rolls up on this boat while they're out on the sea. And Jesus is sleeping through the storm which is awesome, and I really wish I could sleep like that. (laughs) It would be good to get a night of sleep like that, right? But the storm comes, and the disciples, his followers, these are professional fishermen. They knew how to navigate storms, but there was something about this storm that really got them. And so they wake Jesus up, and they're kind of freaking out on Jesus. Like, don't you see what's going on? Don't you care? They essentially ask him, do you not even care that we're about to die? It just seems like you don't care. You're sleeping through one of the scariest moments of our life. And can you relate to that? Like, really, not just preacher talk, but can you really relate to that question? I think it's not hard to imagine. Follower of Jesus or not, I think you've probably had that question come into your mind, especially if you're a Christian. Jesus never promised that following after him was going to make life easier. And then that first time that you realized that that was a true statement he made, becomes hard. And you kind of are like, God, do you not even care what we're going through right now? This storm that we're up against in our family, the storm that I'm up against in my life right now, I just feel like you don't care. And when Jesus wakes up, he doesn't scold them in a way that's like, you guys are ridiculous. Like what in the world? But he does ask him a pretty probing question. He says, where's your faith? Where's your faith? And the question is, is meant to be reflected like, hey, you guys have watched me. You know what I'm capable of. You know how much I care for you. You know that I've promised to be with you. You know that I can take care of anything that we're up against based on what you've already seen. So where's your faith? In other words, where is it? It should be in here somewhere. Take it out and put it on. Like this storm you're up against, I've already told you, you have everything you need to get through the storm, and yet the first sign of the storm coming upon you, it is so much easier to resort back to the way that you used to fight it, instead of the way that he's called us to fight it. See, the Bible has told us that we have been prepared with everything we need to engage in the difficulty that we are up against in this life. But we're made new in Christ, and to see that at times, if we're honest, can be hard. Because it is easy to say, I'm just going to fight this the way I used to fight it. I just need to go make more money, right? I just need to work harder. We just need to do these things. People just need to understand who we are, and then they won't be treating us this way. And life will be a lot easier. We just need to do it this way. And yet he's given us a whole new set of armor to put on. See, last week, Paul said, you have a real enemy. You need to know who that enemy is and what his motives are in your life. This week, he's transitioning to saying, and here's what I've given you to engage that enemy in battle. Let's stand for the reading of God's word in Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 13, here's what the apostle Paul instructs the church. Therefore, meaning, because you know who your enemy is now, you know the darkness, you know everything about what's surrounding you, because you know that, therefore, because you understand that, and you know that you're not each other's enemies, but you have a real enemy who's coming for you, therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of God. You can be seated. In verse 13, Paul starts out this discussion around the armor of God with a really important instruction. He says, you need to put on this armor before the day of evil arrives. You need to make sure that you're ready before the storm comes upon the boat. You need to be ready. So you put all this armor on so that when the storm arrives, not if, but when the day of evil comes, when the attack of the enemy comes in your life, you're already ready fully armored up. For the last couple of years, I've had the privilege of working uh, with the Whitestown Fire Department. You can see uh, the equipment here. And I've had the privilege of working with them as their chaplain. And I've grown an amazing amount of respect for these men and women that serve our community. The things that they do for this community that are seen and unseen, what they have to see and go through in order to serve people is incredible. And in my time working with them, I've picked up on a few things that I find pretty fascinating. One is the attention to detail. When you're a firefighter, you are intimately connected to every single piece of equipment that you wear. You know why you have it. You know what it's for. You know how it works. You know when you're going to need it and when you're going to need to put it away. And you're trained over and over and over again about this. It's not just a one-time thing. They return to helping you understand the equipment and quizzing each other and making sure you understand that equipment. And I find it really fascinating how much equipment and what they're all used for and how they all know what it's for. But the other thing that fascinates me, and you can see this if you go by the firehouse, is their equipment is positioned just like this. It sits just like that right in front of the fire engine. It's always like that. Because as soon as that siren goes off, as soon as the siren goes off, they need to be able in seconds to run, get their feet in there, pull it on, put the coat on, put the hat, and they're gone. So that they can get to you as quickly as possible to help you in whatever situation that you're in. And you know what they don't do? They don't hear that siren go off and think, man, we gotta get there a little bit quicker. What we need to do is throw this stuff in the back of the truck, and when we get there, then we'll evaluate what's going on and we'll put our equipment on. They could never do that. You see, they know going into the fire a little bit about what they're up against, but any firefighter or EMT would tell you that they're not fully prepared for what they're about to come upon. But the armor is on nonetheless. Sometimes they arrive and really it has nothing to do with them and they don't have to do much, but being there helps and so they show up. Other times It's a fire that they thought they understood that they don't understand. But regardless of the size of the battle that they find themselves up against, the armor's already on. They don't say, well, you know, it's just this other thing, so we don't need this. They put on the full armor to engage in the battle regardless of what battle they're up against. And they're always ready ahead of time because you can't show up, get into a burning house and decide what gear you need in the moment. And in verse 13, the apostle Paul says, we can talk all day long about the fun of the armor of God and walk through every little piece and make you really, really excited. But you don't pick and choose what pieces you put on based on what you're going through. You put on the full armor of God regardless of what you're up against in seasons of great joy, knowing that there is a day of evil coming and when it arrives, you want to have all the armor on already. You don't want to be caught without some of that armor up against the house fire that you're not ready to go into up against a trauma that you're not ready to assist in. You're ready at all times. And the Apostle Paul tells us that when it comes to engaging with our real enemy, the gear that we put on, the armor that we put on to engage, consists first of the belt of truth. This is the first piece that he references. And it's important. A lot of times when you read a list, the order, the sequence isn't as important. And then other times when you read a list in your Bible, it's very intentional. And it's very intentional that the Apostle Paul started with the belt of truth. This isn't truth in general, though you might be able to make an argument that just all truth is God's truth, therefore it is truth in general. But it's specifically the truth about who Jesus is. It is your understanding of the truth of the gospel is the belt in the armor. It's the thing that holds everything else together. It's the thing that you don't want to have to think about all the time. It's the thing that you know is so ingrained in who you are that it stabilizes everything else that you're wearing. It puts every piece of armor in place. So your understanding of the gospel consistently being a part of your life, it's second nature. Yeah, the belt holds everything else together. The gospel being that you're a sinner. No one escapes it. I've messed up. I've sinned. And my relationship with God is not able to be repaired by what I'm doing. And so Jesus comes in. He lives a very similar life to the life you lived, except he never sinned, never made a mistake was perfectly obedient to the Father, and because of your sin, you deserve to die, because God is a God of justice, and in order to have justice, he punishes sin, and you have sin, and therefore your sin would lead you to have to die, but Jesus comes, and after living the perfect life, he dies the death that you deserve to die on your behalf, so you no longer have to pay that penalty, and then he rose from the dead, defeating death altogether, so that you're no longer going to have to face death, that gospel message is the message that holds everything else in your life together. That is the belt of truth. This is the truth that you hold on to in your life. The second thing he says is the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness means right living, meaning you're doing. When God looks at you, he sees that you're living the right way. This is different than the righteousness that you get from Jesus, being that now God looks at you and he sees Jesus, this is more on the practical side, your everyday life, making choices that honor God. See, the breastplate protected the vital organs on a a Roman soldier, and it was a big piece of armor that protected some of the most important things, particularly when you think about it, the heart. Spiritually speaking, the breastplate of righteousness is you making decisions that guard your heart from being deceived. You making decisions that bring honor to God. When you're up against a tough situation, understanding based on what God's word teaches, this is the choice I need to make. It's not easy, it's not fun, it's not exciting all the time. It is your righteous living in the everyday mundane parts of your life. I'm just gonna choose. I love the way one preacher said it. I'm gonna choose to do the right thing and trust God with the consequences. Every time, every time. I tell my sons in particular this, my daughter as well. I say a a Christian leader always does the right thing, period. They're not going to do it perfectly, but the goal is, I'm going to choose to do the right thing, the breastplate of righteousness. So when you're living your life as a Christian, you're applying that to your life in your everyday life. I need to put this piece of armor on, and I need to do it before the storm comes. I need to be somebody who's well-practiced at making God-honoring decisions so that when I'm in the thick of a battle, I'm not like, oh, what's the right thing to do? You're well-versed because the armor is something you're always putting on. The next thing he says is this, steady feet. With the gospel, these steady gospel feet. Roman soldiers were given an advantage over a lot of their enemies in the way that they designed their uh, kind of boots, if you will. And they allowed them to be more versatile, able to go places other people couldn't go, every nook and cranny of all of creation. They were able to get into hard places and do difficult things. And Paul's reference here is this, that your feet, your understanding of the gospel that I just walked you through, and your ability to communicate the gospel are like your steady feet. In every situation, easy, hard, every nook and cranny of your life, every single part of your life, you're able to think about how the gospel can be communicated in this situation. Raising your children, in your marriage, in your workplace, with your neighbors down the street, at the ball game, sitting with other parents. Every opportunity that comes, you're steady in your understanding of how you could introduce the gospel into this situation. It is well-informed because it's something you're well-informed with. You're constantly thinking about the gospel, constantly understanding the gospel. As the Bible calls us, you are prepared in season and out of season to give a hope, a defense of that hope that you have in Jesus. So I'm ready to talk about him in all these situations. Again, you don't wait till you're in the moment to prepare for the moment you put the armor on before you run into the fire. That's what he's communicating with this. The next thing is the shield of faith. And when Paul uses the word for shield, it's not just talking like your Captain America shield, like the Frisbee one. Uh, He's talking about this giant big shield that was heavy, difficult to move even. It It protected as much as possible from arrows coming in your direction. And the, feet, the, the, the shield is the faith that you have in God. God is who he said he is. The thing that protects me more than anything else is my belief in God. It's not just in what I do. It's in who I place my faith in. I place my faith in the physical world into this shield that will protect me. And spiritually speaking, the object of my faith is what will protect me more than anything else. And I have this deep faith that God is who he says he is. And God will do what he said he will do. So I'm up against the tragedy. And I'm walking through heartache and pain. And my understanding of who God is is the shield that will protect me from the arrows of despair. Christians grieve. Christians experience pain. Christians experience frustration and annoyance and all of these emotions. But when we place our faith in God, it protects us from going down that path that would lead to utter despair. Because we know that God has a plan and he'll work it together. I don't know what it is. Can't always see it as clearly as possible. But he's always done it. And I believe he always will. And so I carried this shield in front of me. The helmet of salvation, Roman soldiers wore a really specialized helmet made of iron, even had sponge-like padding on the inside of it. And it would protect them. And oftentimes people associate that with thinking, like the way that you think. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying here necessarily. It was a very protective thing. In fact, it would take a very strong swing of an axe to even begin to break through one of these helmets. It protected from arrows and all kinds of things, attacks from the top, It was really incredible piece of equipment. But all of these references to this armor of God are coming from Isaiah, and it's speaking about God and where we get our strength. All of these are outside of ourselves. We really just need the armor to protect us because we can't protect ourselves. We can't run out there without armor on, and all of that protection comes from God. And in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul references, references this helmet again. And the way that he references it, he calls it this helmet uh, of the hope of salvation. It's hope. It's this understanding that no matter what I'm going through, I have hope that I'm going to be saved. Biblical salvation's kind of threefold. You have been saved right, from the penalty of sin in your life. You're not going to be held. If you're a Christian, if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, you will no longer be held accountable for that his righteousness is now yours. But you're also, as the Apostle Paul will tell us, being saved from the power of sin in your life. So sin, even if we're Christians, any Christian in the room would tell you, yes, sin still kind of gets the best of me from time to dime. It's a powerful thing. And as I'm being sanctified, I'm overcoming the power of sin around me. But the Bible also speaks to a, a third element, and it says, I will be saved one day from the very presence of sin. A day when God will come and wipe every tear from your eyes and death and sin will be no more. And the helmet of salvation is our ability to focus on that hope. That no matter how hard this gets, my battle against sin, my struggles, the things that I'm up against, I need to continue to overcome that power, but one day I won't have to exert that energy anymore. And I have a hope that one day sin altogether will be eradicated and it won't even be in my presence. And I will walk with God and he will be my God. We hold on to that hope. And then you have the sword of the Spirit, which is the only offensive piece of armor that we're given here. It's not a giant sword. It's more of a personal combat type sword. And it's empowered by the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Your understanding of the Word of God, you can know a lot about the Bible, but without the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, the depth of that meaning and the way that that affects your life And your ability to respond to Satan's attacks, you're not going to have that extra power. You're not going to be able to do that. This is why when Jesus is facing uh, Satan in the wilderness, he responds with the word of God, the sword of the spirit. And he models for us what we're supposed to do when we're up against the same attack. The lies that come your way. Young people, it's the lies that you begin to believe about yourself because of what the culture is telling you. You got to wear this. You got to act this way. You don't do these things. you got to be a part of that group. You're not pretty enough. You're not strong enough. You're not athletic enough. You're not accomplished enough. It's the lies that we love to associate with young people that every adult in the room is like, I still believe those too, right? Ah. And we combat those lies with the truth of Scripture. It's the Word of God that we rely on. And it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, which I love that that's included in the description. And I've said this before. In John chapter 16... Jesus tells us about how the Spirit's going to work, and he tells us that the Holy Spirit, one of his primary jobs, is to bring to the front of your mind the words of Jesus. That's what he wants to do. The Holy Spirit doesn't like attention. He doesn't like the spotlight to be on him. He wants to point you back to the teaching of Jesus. That's what he's trying to do. So you picture it like a well, and you drop a bucket down into a well on a thirsty, hot day in the middle of a time where you need to have some water, and you hope to pull up that bucket full of water. In the same way, spiritually, when you're in a season of dryness and temptation seems to be getting the best of you, and you start to believe those lies, and you know that you need to combat it with truth, and the Spirit drops the bucket into the well of your heart, will it pull up Scripture, or will it be a dry well? Because in the middle of the battle, you don't want to be struggling to put the armor on. And so you prepare now for what you might need then. A couple observations about our list here and our battle that we're up against. The first one is just understanding the simplicity of the armor of God. We've complicated it with marketing and a whole bunch of other garbage. It's simple. It's everyday life as a Christian. That's it. It's me taking my understanding of the gospel and applying it to my life. It's me saying, I'm going through this. Here's how the gospel applies to this. This is the full armor. How does the truth of what Jesus has done and the whole narrative of what God is doing in the world apply to my life in this moment? That's what you're doing when you're putting on the full armor of God. You're exposing yourself to truth over and over and over again that when you need it, you're able to pull from it. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart that in that moment where I need you the most. There's something that's hidden in there, ready to come out in this season of want. The other thing is this. The armor of God is never intended to be individualistic. It's not. And boy, we have done that so much. We have taken the armor of God and turned it into these little, I'm sorry, I'm not—I'm trying to be nice, uh, somewhat cheapened Bible studies that are surface level at best for marketing employees to sell books and videos and coffee mugs and calendars. And look, I am okay with you memorizing scripture, but to think that this was written simply for you as an individual is to misunderstand what Paul's doing here. As a matter of fact, every time in the original language that Paul references here in Ephesians, it's plural. It's not singular. Let me help you understand it this way. Every time you read in Ephesians 6 the word you, it shouldn't be translated you. It's better to say y'all. Okay, that's what he's saying. So, on the day of evil, y'all might be able to stand. That's what he's saying. You all, all together. That's vitally important. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Here's a picture from the scene in the beginning of the movie Gladiator. Maximus is getting his soldiers ready. You see that shield? They're holding up this shield. And they have this incredible battle at the beginning of the movie that really sets your stage for understanding this leader, Maximus. He leads them through a battle that they may have been up against, you know, something that was going to beat them, and yet, linking shields together, staying together as one, they are able to accomplish this. Well, you fast forward in the movie, he's, he's betrayed and he's uh, sold into slavery and he has to get thrown into the gladiator games where these giant warriors come out and they fight a bunch of weaker people to get thrown out into the middle of the arena for the amusement of the people. And what he notices is, is that when these... Uh, these people that these, get thrown out to fight these gladiators get thrown out into the arena. They run around and try to fight by themselves. And they're trying to defend themselves. And they're kind of freaking out, not knowing how to battle. And he realizes that they don't know what they're doing. So he calls them together. And he says, you can't win on your own. Every time you fight by yourself out here, they're going to beat you. They're going to defeat you. You were never intended to battle with this armor that they're giving you. They gave you a shield. They gave you a sword. And they threw you out there. And they knew you were going to lose because you were going to fight by yourself. Instead, there's a scene where he finally convinces them, and here's the next picture, in the middle of the gladiator games, and he says, stand together. And he has this incredible line where he yells at them, lock your shields, stand as one. And they begin to win, and then they win again, and then win, and the whole narrative begins to change. Not because of any one person who put on the armor and fought their little battles by themselves. It was because they locked the shields. They stayed together. This is a beautiful picture of the church. Paul was writing to a church. And it's a vivid reminder that you can put on all the armor you want, but if you fight by yourself, you are no match for your enemy. Let me close this way. I had a, I, I, I'll explain this way. I had a longer week pastorally this week. All right? All transparency, that's why you had no slides. <laughs> You're like, where were the notes? <laughs> Hope you were listening. Uh, we had two pretty hard moments we had to walk through as a church family this week. We had a young, um, young, woman pass away, and I had walked with her family all week long. Thirty-two years old, and she died, and they had to say goodbye to their daughter. It's brutal, brutally hard. Sitting with them and talking to them and encouraging them and pointing them to Jesus. But you know what I learned from them? They already had the armor on. They were ready. Still hurt. Still a hard fight, still a big battle, but man, they were ready. But I got a beautiful picture of what it looked like to lock shields. And our church rallied around this family, and the communication that they've given back to me about how that made such a difference in their life. We had a, a huge meal. So many of you cooked. They didn't have to think about it, and they all came together after the the, the service, and they just sat together, and they reminisced, and they cried, and they spent time together, and we got to lock shields with them as a church family. Everything that takes place in this place makes this place what it is. There is nothing insignificant that you do in this church because it helps us lock shields with hurting families. In addition to that, Russell Chelf passed away. Betty and Russell have been members here since I think pretty much day one. It took almost 50 years. They've been married for 68 years. Unbelievable. And we were up in the hospital all week saying our goodbyes and ministering to the family. You know what I learned? They had the armor on. They were ready. Still hurt. Wasn't easy. But I learned so much watching this church family lock shields with them and stay as one. As a matter of fact, they had to move Russell in his last days to another part of the hospital because too many of you showed up. There's no promises. You can be as superstitious as you want. you can try to navigate and control all the facets of your life all you want, and the storm will still hit, and it will be really, really hard. And Paul has said, there's armor for you to put on. Put it on now. Don't wait for the fight. Put it on now and be ready when it gets here. And he says, when you put on that full armor and you engage against the real enemy, not the fake enemies, the real enemy, Don't forget, lock shields. Stay as one. Don't fight alone. Lock shields. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the beautiful picture of the church that you've given us. And I thank you for my experience being loved and shaped and molded by the church. You got to pray your blessing over the Davis and the Chelf families, but man, I learned so much from them this week about what it looks like to suffer well, to make much of your son Jesus in the midst of it and to already have the armor on when the battle gets there, when the storm comes. Help us, Father be followers of Jesus who are ready, completely equipped with the full armor of the gospel wrapped around us, ready to engage in battle, but never to engage alone. Help us to lock shields and to stay as one. Thank you for this place. Thank you for this season that we're in where we get to be together and journey through these battles and difficulties and joys and triumphs all together as one. We thank you in Jesus' name.